We're in the middle of our Acts series. We're at Acts chapter 11 today, Acts chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you That's because that's how we roll. Every week we have been reading the entire chapter, and this is the 11th week of this series, and I'm going to read to you the entire chapter of Acts chapter 11. The reason why we're reading the entire chapter and not just an excerpt is because the Bible commands us to commit ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And so uh, the public reading of Scripture is important uh, for some of us. This is the first time you've read a whole chapter of the Bible in a long time. So, you know, we're helping you out as well. So Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object ascending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals on the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said indeed, John, I'm sorry, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyrus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Verse 27, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, then one of them named Agabus, 
stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. If you can turn me down in this monitor here, that'd be great. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would grant us understanding, that you would grant us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we might please you in every way. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to, I want to reframe this series for us this morning for a few minutes by asking the question, why are we going through the book of Acts? And the answer is, we're not going through the book of Acts simply to go through the book of Acts, but we're going through the book of Acts because we're going back to the origins or the foundations of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. You see, when we look at the origin of the church, looking at the origin of the church gives us an understanding of the true nature and definition of the church. In order to understand the definition and purpose of a thing, you must go back to the origin of a thing. And so going back to the book of Acts causes us to see what happened when the church of Jesus Christ was born. How was it defined? How did it function? What did God do? What did they do? And if we can answer these questions from a biblical perspective, that will give us an idea of what God expects us to be as the modern-day church of Jesus Christ. Because the contemporary church of Jesus Christ is of the same essence as the original church of Jesus Christ. The primitive church and the contemporary church are one church. And God has not changed his mind about who he expects us to be as the body of Christ. He has not changed his mind about what he intends to do in and through the body of Christ. And he has not changed his mind about what he wants us to do as members of the body of Christ. It's easy for us to forget It's easy for us to be overwhelmed with contemporary and cultural concerns to the extent that we forget that we are not our own church, that at the end of the day, we are not sons and daughters. At the end of the day, we are the church of Jesus Christ, which means the church belonging to Jesus Christ. And we must not, the question for us is not who are we and what do we do, what makes us unique. The question is what it is that Jesus Christ has called us to be And what brings us into alignment with what he has always called the church in every place and at every time to do and to be. Now, what we have been focusing on this year is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What we see very clearly in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit was the major player throughout the book of Acts. That is, the Holy Spirit did some crazy stuff. The, the book From the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus was directing his disciples toward the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They had a political agenda. They said, Lord, now is it the time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to become a political leader now? Are you going to take over the military now? Are you going to set up your throne in Jerusalem now? They had a political agenda, but Jesus would not allow the church to be driven by a political agenda. He was not there to advance a new politics. He was not there to advance a new agenda, a new worldly agenda. He was not there to enact a new kind of government. 
He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has set in his own power. And when Jesus said that, what he was literally saying is it's also not correct to say that God wants us to stay out of politics. At the end of the day, the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. In other words, he's going to take over all politics one day. The day is coming when Jesus is coming back and he's taken over every government and all politics. It's all going to be the kingdom of God and of his Christ, right? But he said, it's not for you to know those times and seasons. That's not your agenda. That's not your business. But as for you, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Your agenda is always the Holy Spirit. Your agenda is always receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So Jesus, from Acts chapter 1, verse 8 on, sets the agenda for the church. Your agenda, first, is to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, to be my witnesses all over the world. That's what we're to do. When we come together as the body of Christ, we're seeking the power of the Holy Spirit so that when you leave this room, you can be his witnesses wherever you go. Witnesses are simply those who articulate what they have seen and heard. And when we go forth as his witnesses, we're simply articulating, this is what God did in my life. This is what God said to me. This is how he changed me. This is how he set me free. This is how he made me whole. Now, something incredible happens in Acts chapter 10. And we talked about this. Well, I talked about this a couple of weeks. Was I here when I talked to I don't. I'm so turned around. I don't know if I was here or in Emeryville. I don't even know when the last time. I think it's been three weeks since I've been here. I don't know what's going on anymore. I don't, I, you know, I'm just, it's on the podcast, by the way. How many of you get the podcast? I would encourage you, if you don't get the podcast, check out the Living Hope podcast. It's in the iTunes podcast directory. And you can not only catch the sermon here, but there's my wife's preaching a powerful message on the other side of the bay. If you want to hear a message that's going to correct all of my in, incorrect theology and all of that stuff, you go to get my, my wife's message because she's the one who really hears from God. <laughs> but I'm the one who really knows the Bible. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I, I, <laughs> I'm just playing. I, don't tell her I said that. I hope she don't listen to this. I'm going to have to cut that out of the recording. <laughs> nah, I'm just playing. I just, I ain't got it. So what happens in Acts chapter 10, we talked about this. Now, now this, is, this is what's interesting. So the story happens in Acts chapter 10, and now we're in Acts chapter 11, and Peter recaps the whole story in Acts chapter 11. It happens in Acts 10, and then it's recapped in chapter 11. Now, before it hap- now, as it happens in Acts 10, Peter has a vision, and Luke explains the whole vision. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He explains the whole vision, and then it repeats three times. Now, number one, in Peter's experience, the vision repeats three times. Whenever God repeats himself three times, that means two things. Number one, this is very important to God. Number two, your heart of hearing and so he has to say it three. It's interesting that when God, when God talks to men, he always repeats their name twice. When God talks to women, he says their name once. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And then when he's speaking to Mary, he says, Mary. <laughs> you know, women get it quicker. <laughs> so Peter's a man. So God had to show him this vision three times. It's like, you didn't get it the first time. Divine repetition is highly intentional. God will repeat things until you get it. 
There's, you see what happens? All of us, at some point, you go through a, rep- a repetitive trial. You go through a trial that you go through, you have to go through the same trial again and again and again. It's because you didn't get it. And so you got to go through it again because you didn't get it the last time. It's like, um, anyway, I'm not even going to give examples because, you know, it's going to hit too close to home. Mm-hmm. But the reason you left the last five churches you were at is not the pastor's fault and the people's fault. And it's because you didn't get it. There's a lesson you're trying to get. You understand what I'm The reason the last four girls broke up with you is not because they were crazy. It's because you didn't get it. If you don't get it, there's going to be a fifth one. And a six, the reason you lost the last five jobs you had is not because you had crazy, unhealthy bosses. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? So you see, sometimes you got to repeat the same thing over again because you didn't get it the last time. My favorite example of that is John chapter 15, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells three parables. All three of them have the same message, but he had to tell another one because they didn't get it. And so he started with the lost sheep and they didn't get it. So he told them about the lost coin and they didn't get it. So he told them about the lost sons. And at the third time, if, and this is the thing for God, if you don't get it after the third time, you're just out of luck. Because <laughs> God don't repeat it a fourth or fifth time. <laughs> but here, Peter has this vision three times. And the reason he has this vision three times is because it is paradigm shifting for Peter. It changes his theology. It changes his outlook on life. It changes his understanding of God. It changes his perception of the world. And most importantly, it changes his associations. And this one is so important. You see, up until Acts chapter 10, if you were a Jew, any kind of Jew, you did not associate with any kind of non-Jew. If you were a circumcised child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you did not associate with any uncircumcised non-child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only way you would associate yourself with a non-Jew is if they got circumcised and became a proselyte to Judaism. Can you imagine if circumcision was a requirement for friendship? <laughs> you know, like, be like, but are you circumcised though? Can you prove it? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know if I can approve your friend's request on Facebook. I need some proof of your circumcision. No, I'm just playing. But, <laughs> the, 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 but that, was, that was the norm. Why? Because of the Old Testament standard, which was called the defilement by association paradigm. And here's what the defilement by association paradigm is. It's the idea that if something clean touches something unclean, the clean thing becomes unclean. So if you're a circumcised child of Abraham, you're clean. If you're an uncircumcised non-child of Abraham, you're unclean. And if a circumcised child of Abraham mingles with an uncircumcised non-child of Abraham, then the, un- then the circumcised child of Abraham will be tarnished, will be soiled, will be defiled in that transaction. And so God even spoke to Israel and said, come out from among them and be separate. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. Now there was a very clear message there and the clear message was don't participate in other people's sins. And that truth continues to be true. But Jesus lived a radically different lifestyle. 
throughout the life, see, you see Jesus, he lays, he puts his hands on sick people. And that's not because he thought power was coming out of his hands. There's so much like, you know, in Christianity, we think it's like power's coming out of this hand. You know, I, I've heard even, I've heard preachers say, I've got power in my right hand. I got no power in my left hand. So I got to lay my right hand on you if I want you to be healed. As if the power is, you know, there's like this Christian magic. She's like, abracadabra. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, but that, that wasn't why Jesus laid hands on people. Jesus laid hands on people to make a point. No good Jewish person would touch a sick person. You would be defiled and unclean, and especially a leper. What did Jesus do to lepers? He put his hands on them. What about a woman on her period? The woman with the issue of blood had been on her period for for like 20 years. How many years it was? 12 years. Yeah, my bad. A woman on her period for 12 years. You don't touch her. She touched Jesus, and Jesus stops and goes, which one of y'all touched me? And the disciples go, everybody's touching you. He goes, nah, 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 nah. Somebody touched me. (laughs) Somebody touched me, touched me. And they're like, did somebody abuse you? (laughs) You Did somebody somebody touch you? He goes, nah, 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 nah. Somebody touched me in faith. And the woman runs up and falls to the ground and confesses everything. She thought she was in trouble. She wasn't supposed to touch anybody. Matter of fact, it said she pressed her way through the crowd, meaning she defiled everybody. She defiled the whole crowd. If a woman on her period touched you, you had to spend seven days outside the camp. This woman presses through the crowd, defiling everybody, soiling everybody. She's like, they don't even know they're unclean now. And then she gets to Jesus, and all she could do was touch the hem of his garment. She was afraid to actually touch him. But she thought, maybe he won't notice. There was a little string hanging off the back of his robe. And she said, I'm just going to touch that little string. And she touched it, and the power of God came through her body, and she was healed. And she laid on the ground and let him go by, thinking, nobody will see me. Nobody will know what I just did. And Jesus stops it. Somebody touched me. And the disciples are like, everybody's touching you. He goes, no, 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 no. He said, I just felt virtue go out from my body. The word virtue, actually, the, the, uh, the Greek word there is arete. It literally means excellence. He said, I just felt excellence come out of my body. And they're like, do you need a bathroom? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what? Something just came out of your body. No, 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 no. I, I felt power come out of my body. Somebody touched me in faith, and the woman came and confessed everything, thinking she was in trouble. As the woman is confessing, the whole crowd is going, oh, Lord, I hope she didn't touch me. But Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? You didn't defile me. You didn't defile me because you were unclean. You didn't defile me because you had stuff in your life that you couldn't fix. You didn't defile me. You can't soil me. No, 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 no. If you touch Jesus, you don't soil him. He cleanses you. Jesus enacted the sanctification by association paradigm in which if an unclean thing touches a clean thing, the unclean thing becomes clean. Jesus touches lepers, and instead of himself becoming defiled, the lepers become clean. 
He touches the woman on her on, on with the issue of blood touches Jesus. Instead of Jesus being unclean, the woman becomes clean. And by implication, literally, Jesus retroactively cleansed everybody she touched. He literally, he literally reversed the curse of her past. Isn't that crazy that Jesus not only can cleanse you and touch you and heal you, but he can cleanse your past. He can wash away everything that you messed up in the past. He can, he can I mean, that's how powerful Jesus is. But the disciples didn't get it. So after Jesus goes away to heaven, the disciples are still thinking, we got to stay away from the unclean thing. We got to stay away from unclean people. We got to stay away from people who might soil us. We can't touch the unclean thing. We got to stay away from Gentiles. And and that's why it was so hard for them when Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Literally, you're going to have to leave Jerusalem. The reason they hesitated for so long was because the question they couldn't figure out in their mind was, how are we going to leave Jerusalem without touching Gentiles? If we leave Jerusalem, see, Jerusalem is our bubble. It's the place where we lock ourselves in this room and we only interact with one another. That's what the church becomes after a while. It's a bubble where Christians get together and talk Christianese. Where we don't have any contact with anybody on the outside. Then we go to our offices and we play worship music at our desk to try to cleanse, to create a little bubble in the office. And we tell people at the next desk, could you turn that music down? It offends me because I'm a Christian. Stay out of my bubble. Don't touch me. You might soil me. You might make me dirty. You might make me unclean. I don't want to be around you. Now, don't get me wrong. There's the opposite problem as well. There are Christians who have taken this paradigm so far that they go out and they engage in the same stuff that unbelievers engage in, and they, they soil themselves. The unbelievers don't become clean. The believers become more unclean. Jesus wants to teach them a new paradigm. He wants to give them faith for something different. And so now Peter has this vision. The sheet comes down. We talked about it. The sheet comes down. It's full of all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean. And the voice says, Peter, you hungry? He's like, you know I'm hungry. He said, you got, you got, your, you got your sword on? You got your shank? He's like, you know I got a shank. I always got a shank. He's like, good. Pick one of these animals, kill it, and, and you know, have a barbecue. And Peter goes, he looks around at the sheet. He goes, "Uh uh-uh, not so, Lord. He's talking to God. Not so, Lord. Never say not so to the Lord. I mean, if the Lord is telling you something, (laughs) you you know what I mean? He knows he's talking to God. He's like, not so, Lord. Mm -mm. Can't do that, Jesus. (laughs) I've never eaten anything unclean or common. Why doesn't Peter say, I'll eat the clean animals but not the unclean animals? Because they've mixed The unclean animals have now mixed with the clean animals, so even the clean animals are unclean. And God says, what I've cleansed, don't you dare call unclean. Do you hear what God is saying? What God is saying, Peter, you got it twisted. The clean animals have touched the unclean animals. Now the unclean animals are clean. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to shout, because now we can have ham sandwiches. uh, We can have baby back ribs. uh, Mm. Bacon. <laughs> you heard Jim Gaffigan's whole thing on bacon? You got to Google it if you haven't seen it. You got you to YouTube it. He's like, you ever go to a buffet 
You get to the end of the line, and there's like a huge tub full of bacon. It's like, I found the fountainhead of all bacon. It's like a rainbow coming out of that thing. Never, you're like, I should have waited. <laughs> you know. Anyway, you got you to see Jim Gaffigan on bacon. You got to see that thing. It's funny. The vision repeats for Peter three times. Peter has a revelation. He doesn't know what it means. Meanwhile, Peter's in Joppa, way over in Caesarea. There's this guy named Cornelius, and he's praying and talking to the Lord. But Cornelius' problem is that as much as he prays and talks to the Lord, he's kind of at this level, at this limit. He can't seem to break through. He knows who God is, but he doesn't know God. He knows that he's serving the right God, but he doesn't know the God that he serves. He knows that he's giving. He's giving financially to God. He's serving God. He's praying to God. He's going to the, 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 the synagogue, and he's worshiping God, but he can't seem to break through. He can't seem to come into the knowledge of this God that he knows is real. It's like God is there, but I can't reach him. I can't seem to get to him. I think there's a lot of people like that around the world. I call them the modern-day God-fearers. That's what they call Cornelius. He was a God-fearer. He knew who God was, but he couldn't seem to get there. And so, and so an angel appears to Cornelius. He's in prayer one day, and an angel appears to him, and this is what the angel says. Your prayers and your offerings have come up before God as a memorial. Translation, you can't see God yet, but God can see you. You can't hear God yet, but God can hear you. You haven't even met him yet, but he's met you. You don't know him yet, but he knows you. And he sees what you're doing, and he remembers what you're doing. He sees what you're doing, and he remembers what you're doing. He sees that even though you don't know him, you're trying to live your life right. He sees that even though you don't know him, you're living as though you do know him. It's interesting that sometimes people who don't know God live like they do, and people who do know God live like they don't. Your prayers and your offerings have become a memorial before God. Meaning God can't stop thinking about you. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to send men to Joppa and inquire for a man named Simon, whose surname is Peter, and he'll tell you what to do. Isn't it interesting that the angel does not preach the gospel to Cornelius himself? Because God has delegated the responsibility of preaching the gospel to us. And so you've got Cornelius, who has his revelation, and Peter, who has his revelation, and they're in two different cities. And what happens is the meaning of Peter's revelation will not become clear until he meets Cornelius. And the meaning of Cornelius' revelation will not become clear until he meets Peter. You see, your destiny is governed by three laws. The first is called the law of experience. The second is called the law of relationship. And the third is called the law of place. Before you can fulfill your destiny, there are some things that you have to experience. And so many of the trials and tribulations that you go through is simply God fulfilling the law of experience. He's allowing you to walk through what you have to walk through in order to prepare you to walk into what he has destined you to walk into. But then secondly, there's some people that you have to meet. There's some stuff that God has spoken to you that will not become clear to you until you meet some folks. And there's some stuff that God has spoken to them 
that will not come cl- become clear until they meet you. You see, there is, when God gives revelation, it's like a piece of the puzzle. He never gives any one person a whole revelation. He gives you a piece of a revelation, and he's put the other piece in somebody else, which means you cannot simply lock yourself in a room by yourself and watch a TV preacher or listen to a podcast and think that you're going to grow to maturity in Christ. You've got to find the other pieces to your puzzle. You've got to find the relationships that you need to clarify what God is speaking to you and putting on your heart. Peter knows the Lord. But he's heard from God, and he doesn't actually know what he's hearing. He don't know what this means. At the, he sees the vision three times, and at the end of it, he's sitting up there going, what does this mean? <laughs> Cornelius doesn't know the Lord, but he sees the vision, and he knows exactly what this means. I need to find me some Peter. <laughs> but Peter's not over there going, I need to find me some Cornelius. Peter is unclear. Cornelius is clear. But what Cornelius is clear about is that he can't do anything until he meets Peter. So now Peter comes downstairs. There's some men waiting for him at the door. And we talked about this when we did Acts chapter 10. Peter goes with them. And now when Peter is standing in Cornelius' house, there's this resonance, this fellowship between what God said to Cornelius and what God said to Peter. And in the coming together of those two revelations, there's this release of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that comes from it. Why? Because Peter's in the right place with the right people after having had the right experiences. And Cornelius is in the right place with the right people after having had the right set of experiences. In other words, in the book of Acts, The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is not just a light bulb that you turn on. It's not just a a switch that you flip. It's not just something that is automatic. It's not just something that happens by the will of men or the will of women. It's not something that's created by our our endeavors. You can't just make a decision. We're going to have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit here. It's not just about us coming together, deciding we're going to experience it, the Holy Spirit. It's about each of us individually seeking the face of God, hearing God, and then putting together the pieces of the puzzle. You know, I find everywhere I go around the world, there's people that God has for me to meet that I had no idea I was going to meet. I just got back from New York on Friday night, as I told you, and as, as I was in New York, there were a number of divine encounters, like God had these appointments set for me that I had no clue that God had set for me. And there were people that reached out to me while I was there, hey, I heard you're in town, can we meet for coffee? And something in me says, I need to meet this person for coffee. And then I meet them for coffee, and all of a sudden something opens up, there was a couple there that, that, that we didn't even know was there, and they reached out to me and Sunny and said, hey, can we hang out with you? And we hung out with them all week long, and we found that as we hung out with them, there was this clarifying of their destiny and things that my wife and I were able to speak over them and even Daniel was able to speak over their lives that unlocked a sense of destiny, that something was hanging in the atmosphere over their lives that we were able to unlock by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what was crazy was at the same time, God was unlocking something of our own destiny and clarifying stuff in our hearts and minds. Like as as we were meeting with them and talking with them, God was not only clarifying what he was saying to them, he was clarifying what he was saying to us. It's always mutual. It's never one way. That is, this whole outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened in the house of Cornelius 
never would have happened had Peter not been willing to leave his comfort zone. Had Peter not been willing to step out of his comfort zone and associate himself with people that he never would have associated himself with before. But he had to be willing to associate himself with those people in obedience to the command of God, not simply because he had this agenda of diversity. You know, this is what we see happening in the body of Christ in our day and age. There's this agenda. Everybody's talking about diversity, diversity. We need diversity. We need diversity. We need diversity as if diversity is something that you can just create arbitrarily. You know, when we started Living Hope in 2004, it was immediately a diverse church. And everybody, so many pastors I know asked me, like, how did that happen? And we're like, uh, I don't even know. (laughs) You know, I don't even know. I mean, I, I I don't know. We just opened the doors and these folks came in. It was not only ethnically diverse, it was generationally diverse. Right now on the Emeryville side of the bay, we got every, every age group from the cradle to the grave. I mean, I mean that quite literally. We got folks in their 80s, and we got folks in their months that haven't even reached a year. We got infants to, to elders. We got almost super centennials up in that place, all the way down to, you know, infants. And then we got every color, every shape, every size. Every economic group, it's like diversity just happened naturally. And the question is, how do you create diversity? You know what the answer is? You simply open your heart to associate yourself with people that you might not have associated. See, this is our biggest, the biggest problem is that the body of Christ has become a network of cliques. Honestly, even in a diverse church, we can operate as a network of cliques. Because when, when I say greet somebody at the end of worship, greet somebody, I look out and see what happens. You know what I see happen? A bunch of millennials greet one another. The Gen Xers go and find another Gen Xer. The baby boomers go find another baby. You, you understand what I'm saying? Asians look for other Asians to greet. And as soon as we end the service, even if you talk to somebody you don't know, it's going to be somebody you don't know who looks like you. We just have this natural propensity for clicking in the body of Christ. It's just about, and then oftentimes I've heard people, and this is what's hard in a diverse church. Somebody comes, Pastor, I'm leaving the church. Why are you leaving the church? Because I'm in my 50s, and there's not enough people in their 50s in this church. I need to find a church with other people in their 50s. I'm like, um... But what about so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? And they're like, yeah, yeah, they're there, but I need more people in my age group in this church. And then a week later, somebody else comes, Pastor, I'm leaving the church. Why? Because I'm in my 40s, and there's not enough people in their 40s in this church. And then a week later, Pastor, I'm leaving the church. Why? Because I'm in my 30s. And I'm like, all these people can't be right. <laughs> like, we got to have some age group in the church. <laughs> We've had people of every decade leave because there wasn't enough of them in the church. I look around, I'm like, there's got to be somebody in the church who's some age. But the other side of it is, maybe we're looking for the wrong basis for fellowship. 
Like maybe our concept of fellowship in the body of Christ is built on the wrong thing. Maybe it's built on age group and it's built on ethnicity and it's built on human interest instead of the Holy Spirit of the living God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, we had a congregational meeting and we were trying to set up community groups or small groups at the time. And everybody was complaining about their group. I don't like the people in my group. I don't like, I want to go to another group because I don't like these people. I live in Fremont, but I don't want to go to the Fremont group. I want to go to the Walnut Creek group. You're willing to drive to Walnut Creek because you don't like the people in Emeryville or in, in Fremont? Yes, I'm willing to drive all the way to Walnut Creek because I like those people. Well, I'm so sorry, but the Bible don't, listen, the priority of God is not that you fellowship with people you like. One person said, I'm a mother. I want to be in a group with other mothers. Somebody else said, I like cycling. I want to be in a group with other cyclers. Somebody else said, I, I work for the government. I want to be in a group with other government workers. Somebody else said, I'm a, I'll go to Congress. I want to be in a group with other people. Who are like. I just want people who are like me. And nobody said anything about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible. I'm sorry, but we are not the YMCA. We are not a club. We are not a Christian club. We are supposed to maintain the unity of the Spirit, but we have not identified the unity of the Spirit until we start with the recognition that what binds us together is not the color of our skin. It's not the age of our lives. It's not what we do for a living. It's not our socioeconomic background, but it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God. And when we start with that, do you know, do you realize when you start with that, it doesn't matter if the person's younger than you. I can receive from somebody who's 20 years younger than me. Why? Because the same Holy Spirit who dwells in me dwells in them. And the Holy Spirit who dwells in them has something to speak into my life. We start with all these walls. You don't understand me because you don't understand my color. Who needs to understand your color? I mean, don't, maybe, you know, maybe you might be right, but you can help me understand your color. But your color is not the foundation of our fellowship. The foundation of our fellowship is something greater than ethnicity. It's something great. And listen, if you start with that, and this is, this is what I'm trying to get to. If you start with that and learn how to be led by the Holy Spirit, you will find yourself interacting with all kinds of people who don't look like you who don't sound like you, who don't come from where you come from, who haven't had the experiences you've had, don't you realize that in order for God to broaden you and widen you and increase you, he's got to connect you with some folks who don't look like you, who don't sound like you, who haven't come from where you come from, who haven't had the kind of experiences you've had? And that if you're not willing to step outside of that comfort zone and let the Holy Spirit fit you with a puzzle piece that doesn't look anything like you, you actually are cutting yourself off from the true move and the true outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You see, a diverse church, the strength of a diverse church is that it forces us to find a new foundation for fellowship. If you take a bunch of 25-year-olds who are all Korean, who all work in tech in the city, and put them in a room by themselves, how hard is it to build fellowship there? It's pretty easy, right? 
Fellowship is low-hanging fruit in that room. But if you take 100 people, every single one of them is a unique ethnicity and a different age, come from a different country, (laughs) work in a different field, have a different educational level, and a different socioeconomic background, you're going to have to find a different foundation for fellowship. A foundation for fellowship that transcends all of these things. Do you know what God was doing for Peter in that vision? He was giving him a new foundation. He was saying, Peter, I've got some associations for you that you're not going to understand. But if you follow my lead, I'm going to lead you into an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that transcends anything you've ever experienced before in your life. I remember being in Israel in 1995 as a little knuckle-headed 18-year-old kid, honestly. I wish I could go back to Israel. You know, I want to plan a trip to Israel. I want to teach through the Gospels on site in Israel. Like, I want us to do a trip to Israel. I want to take the whole church, like from both sides of the bay, like 300 of us just go to Israel together. And we'll go from site to site, and I want to teach through the whole New Testament. You know, I had some, some of the most powerful experiences going to the Elah Valley where David killed, Saul, where David killed Goliath. It's like, dang, <laughs> seeing the stones in that valley was one, probably one of these stones. This might be the stone he killed Goliath with right here. You know, I went to, the, I went to one of the fields where Samson had tied the, the fox's tails together and put torches and, and burnt down the field, and they had just had a fire there. I was like, dang, Samson was just here. This is crazy. This is awesome. You know, my craziest, one of my crazy experiences was going to Jericho where they found the ruins. It was the excavation site where the walls of Jericho, the ruins of the walls of Jericho, where Joshua walked around the walls seven times and then they gave a shout and the walls came tumbling down for seven days. On the seventh day, the walls came tumbling down and we were standing there and I'm standing there and I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool because, you know, excavation sites when you're 18 years old is not very exciting, you know. I was like, all right, this, you know, excavation, okay, cool. And one of my, my buddies, he walked over to me and he said, Benjamin, check this out. And he opened his Bible to Joshua chapter five and he read this passage where Joshua was standing outside of the walls of Jericho and the angel of the Lord comes to him with a drawn sword. And Joshua sees him and says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the angel responds, nope. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he says, nah, <laughs> nah, nah. He says, I've come as the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua's like, dang! <laughs> he says, what does my Lord command? And the angel says, take off your shoes, for the ground upon which you stand is holy. And Joshua took off his shoes and bowed with his face to the ground. When he read that, something opened up inside of me. And I said, oh, my God, the ground we're standing on is holy. Like, this is outside of the city of Jericho. This could have been the place where Joshua stood with the angel of the Lord. And we could just feel the presence of God come. Like, oh, my God, I'm standing on holy ground. All of a sudden, there was this awareness. But I remember one morning, every morning, we would go to the wall of the temple, the western wall of the temple, the last remaining wall of the temple. And we would pray. We had to have a head covering to, to go in there. And I went in early one day, and I'm standing at the wall of the temple, and I'm praying. You know what was crazy? You know what was cray-cray? Was I read that passage there where God told uh, Solomon that he would always hear the prayers uttered from that temple. Like He says, anybody who prays in this place, I'll hear their prayers. And I read that, and I'm like, I was like, oh, snap, this is an opportunity. So I, I called all my friends. I was like, write down any prayer requests you have on little slips of paper and give them to me. And I collected all these prayer requests. And I didn't even open them. 
I just went to the temple, started shoving them in the wall. <laughs> and I started praying. At the temple wall, I was like, Lord, you promised that you would hear prayers prayed at this place. And so, God, I lift up all of these prayers and all these prayer requests that are offered to you. I couldn't believe when I got home, people started calling me going, dude, God answered that prayer. I mean, it was stuff like people were praying for the salvation of a loved one. They're like, dude, my uncle got saved. Dude, my cousin came to the Lord. Dude, my mother got healed. Dude, my cousin got healed. It's like, God answered those requests. I was blown away at the kind of answers to prayer that came. But one morning I'm there standing at the western wall of the temple, and I begin to pray. And I begin to pray in the spirit, and I'm praying in tongues. And all of a sudden, I could sense the presence of this man who was standing maybe five feet away from me. And at the moment, at the same moment, it's like he could sense my presence. But we were praying in two different languages. So I didn't know where he was from or who he was, or I honestly didn't even know if he was a believer in Jesus or not. I just knew we were both there, and I could feel, I could sense. It was almost like my spirit recognized this man. And slowly but surely, as we were praying, we started to inch closer to one another. It just happened so organically, so naturally, until suddenly we were standing side by side, praying in two different languages neither understanding the other in the natural, but in the spirit. My spirit recognized him. His spirit recognized me. And all of a sudden, we're turning in towards one another. And we're just, hallelujah, glory to Jesus. And we're having this powerful prayer meeting. And when it was over, we prayed together for like an hour. And then it was over. And we started talking. He barely spoke English. But he told me that he was a believer in Jesus Christ. And I had this powerful time of fellowship with a man who didn't look like me, didn't speak my language, didn't come from where I came from, didn't understand my ethnic background, didn't have the same skin color as me, didn't have the same kind of mama that I had. Hello? Because the foundation of our fellowship was not culture, was not ethnicity, was not human experience, was not human interest, was not political agenda, but it was simply the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, he has this experience in the home of Cornelius, and then he comes back to the church in Judea. And it says there in chapter 11, verse 1, that the church in Judea had heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. You would think that since they heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God, that they would be happy, right? They would rejoice, right? But verse 2 says that the members of the circumcision began to contend with Peter. You went into the home of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? You went into the home of unclean people and you ate with them? And it says Peter explained the whole thing to them from the beginning. And now Luke tells us the whole story all over again. Peter says, I was in Joppa, I was on the roof, fell into a trance, had a vision. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord, never ate anything unclean or common. But God said, what I've cleansed, don't call common. The vision repeated for me three times, then everything was taken up into heaven. Then immediately there were men downstairs waiting for me. Why have you come? Our master Cornelius has sent for you. I went with them because the Holy Spirit told me, go with them, don't ask them any questions. And Peter says, I went into the man's house. There was everybody assembled there. I began to speak to them. And as I spoke, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And when I saw that they received the Holy Spirit the same way we did, who was I that I could fight with God? 
This is what happened over and over again in the early church. They had an idea of what God was going to do. But God did something different. And when God did something different, they had to stop and say, can we fight against God? (laughs) We either change what we're doing to fit what God's doing, or we try to force God to change what he was doing to fit what we... Do you see what the members of the circumcision were saying? Peter, you got the order wrong. You got to get them circumcised. They've got to become full proselytes to Judaism. Then you could tell them about Jesus Christ. You see that trajectory? And then you could sit with them and eat with them. Once they purify their houses and throw out everything that's unclean, that's the order. You got to tell them about Jesus when you first meet them. They have to say the sinner's prayer. They have to repent of all their sins. Then you got to go through their house with them and throw out everything unclean. Then you could fellowship with them and hang out with them. You got to make sure they stop cussing because the worst thing a Christian can do is be around people cussing. It will, it will. No, I'm, I'm laughing because I was, I was hanging out with my parents and I started showing them these old Key and Peel sketches. And they were cracking up laughing, right? And then I got bold and showed them an old Dave Chappelle, like a, a Chappelle show sketch. <laughs> but I happened to pick the wrong one. It was uncensored. And so I'm cracking up laughing. And then I look up and my parents are like this. And when it's finished, I look at my mom and my mom says, son, do you believe the Lord is pleased with that? I said, no, I don't believe he is. She says, son, lift your hands and repeat after me. I said, yes, mother. (laughs) She got me delivered that very day. (laughs) She got me set free. Delivered. I've been delivered. We think people's lives should change in a particular order. We think people should come to Christ in a particular order. It's got to start with you changing your life. No, it doesn't start with religion. It starts with relationship. It doesn't start with the recognition of all the wrong stuff in your life. It starts with the recognition that Jesus is real. The problem in the early church is that they had the wrong idea of what the order should be. If people really want to follow Jesus, they got to start with circumcision. We always want people to start with circumcision. It doesn't start with circumcision. It starts with revelation. There was a young lady who came to our church several years ago, and she was an exotic dancer. And there was a handful of people who knew that she was an exotic dancer, and my wife befriended her. And my wife said to her, could you and I meet together once a week? I want to just like do a Bible study with you, just one-on-one. And she said, yeah, I would love that. And so my wife started meeting with her every week. And one day, somebody came to my wife and said, you got to tell her to quit her job. And my wife said, no. I want her to meet Jesus first. And Jesus will tell her when she needs to quit her job. I'm not trying to tell her to buy the field. I'm trying to help her find the pearl of great price. And one day, after about three months, the young lady said to my wife, 
I think I need to quit my job. I think I need to find a different kind of work because what I found with Jesus, it just doesn't agree with this lifestyle that I've been living. And my wife said, I fully agree. (laughs) And she quit her job. And she changed her life, but not because the religion demanded it, but because the relationship demanded it. You see, there's a difference between making a change because of what religion demands and making a change because of what your relationship with Jesus demands. There's a difference between really knowing Jesus and knowing religion. Where are you going, baby girl? Come back in here and sit down. You too, Ola. That's like the third or fourth time you done went out. Nobody needs to pee that much. Thank you. It's so hard to be the pastor's child. I'm going to hear about that. (laughs) All right. Last part of chapter 11. I'm going to close this up. Don't worry. Peter explains the whole situation, and the Scripture said, after Peter explained what God did, they became silent. They had no more objections, meaning there was nothing more they could say. And then they glorified God, saying, then even the Gentiles have been granted repentance unto life. Then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. We must never forget that repentance is something that only God can give us. Repentance is not something that we do of our own accord. God has to grant you repentance. That should be one of the prayers that we pray. Lord, grant me repentance. Give me repentance. Now, then it backtracks and says some of the individuals that were scattered after the persecution of Stephen, we talked about this a couple, a couple chapters ago, where Stephen was killed back in chapter, the end of chapter 7. And, um, and, so, and then the great persecution broke out against the, the Greek-speaking Christians in, in Jerusalem, and they were scattered they went about preaching the word everywhere. They were scattered. They went about preaching the word everywhere, everywhere to Jews only, meaning they were still of this idea that the gospel is only for Jewish people. They were still of this idea that we only talk to people who are like us. But there was a few radicals among them who actually went out and started sharing the gospel with Greeks, meaning non-Jewish people. Stop that, please. Thank you. (laughs) And people started to receive Jesus Christ. All of these like non-Jewish people started receiving Jesus Christ. And the apostles in Jerusalem heard about it right around the time that Peter had his whole thing with Cornelius. And so who did they send? They sent Barnabas out to check it out. Barnabas, son of encouragement. They said, Barnabas will know if this is God or not. And Barnabas went out there and he saw the grace of God and he rejoiced and he encouraged them. And then he But then Barnabas left them, and we're coming to the end here. Somebody come to the keyboard and start playing medicationally so I can, you know, finish this thing up. Barnabas said, there's something you guys need. There's something this church needs. And he remembers this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who 14 years ago in chapter 9 had had his encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Barnabas is in Antioch, and he sees the grace of God, and he thinks, this church needs something. And then he remembers, man, there's this guy, Saul of Tarsus, had his encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, but he's been hanging out in Tarsus for the last 14 years. For 14 years, nothing has happened. 
For 14 years, God has not used all of the goodness that he put on the inside of this guy. I think it's time for this guy to come out of obscurity. And so Barnabas says to to the church at Antioch, I'll be right back. And he journeys all the way down to Tarsus. Anybody seen Saul? I'm looking for this dude named Saul. And he finds Saul. Saul has been waiting for 14 years for God to do something in his life. For 14 years, Saul had a sense of destiny. For 14 years, Saul had a sense that God has put something in my life, and I don't know what it is. He's got a work for me to do, and I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to get there. Saul couldn't have even put together a five-year plan for that destiny because he didn't even know what it was. He couldn't have even put together a 10-year plan for that destiny. He didn't know what it was. You know, all he could do was seek God and remain in a place of availability to him. You see, Saul had had his revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. 14 years had transpired, and he was waiting for the person who had the other piece of that puzzle. And Barnabas, had the word of God not reached Antioch, Barnabas would not have been sent there. And had Barnabas not been sent there, he would have never remembered Saul. God is putting together the pieces like a puzzle, weaving it together like a tapestry, causing iron to sharpen iron, the countenance of a man, his brother. He says, I've got a destiny for Cornelius, but he can't fulfill it without Peter. I got a destiny for Peter, but he can't fulfill it without Cornelius. I've got a destiny for Antioch, but they can't fulfill it without the persecution of Stephen. I've got a destiny for Barnabas, but he can't fulfill it till he goes to Antioch. I got a destiny for Saul, but he can't fulfill it until Barnabas comes to get him. Barnabas goes down to Tarsus and gets Saul, brings them back to Antioch. And the moment Barnabas and Saul show up in Antioch, the whole destiny of that church is set in motion, and they don't even know it. The whole destiny of Barnabas and Saul is set in motion, and they don't even know it. And the whole destiny of Saul of Tarsus is set in motion, but he doesn't even know that everything has changed. All he knows is that there's a church that needs me in Antioch, and I'm going to go serve that church. All he knows is that God is calling me to go to Antioch, and I'm going to go serve what it is that God is calling. See, you have no clue that answering a simple call to serve God in a simple place for what might even seem to be a short season could be the missing piece of the puzzle that releases you into your destiny. Had Barnabas not gone to Tarsus to get Saul that day, We would not have the book of Romans. We would not have 1 and 2 Corinthians. We would not have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We would not have 1 and 2 Timothy. We would not have 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We wouldn't have any of those books of the Bible. It all started when Barnabas said, I remember this guy. I think the body of Christ needs this guy. And he went down to get him. He said, brother, come with me. You don't look like me, but come with me. You're not from the same city I'm from, but come with me. You didn't grow up the same way I grew up, but come with me. You didn't meet Jesus the same way I met Jesus, but come with me. You don't have the same background that I have. You are a murderer. I was never a murderer, but come with me. I'm not afraid of you, brother. I'm not afraid to touch you. I'm not afraid to be in your presence. You see, Barnabas, what made him a son of encouragement was that he wasn't afraid to come alongside people who were different than him. 
He wasn't afraid to allow himself to be the missing piece of the puzzle in somebody else's life. Because of that, God used him to do great things. And I'm telling you, God has great stuff planned for your life. Stuff that he planned before the foundation of the world. But he's got to connect you to some people. He's got to bring you into some places. He's got to let you have some experiences. You might not know when it is or where it is or what it is. You simply need to be available to the Spirit of God and be willing to follow his leadership and follow his direction. Let him take you where he's going. Let him show you what he's different doing. Let him destroy some of your paradigms that keep you all locked up and tied up. Let him open you to some new stuff that he can see but you can't see. Let him remove the blinders from your eyes. What we see in the book of Acts is the interdependence that there are no super Christians who don't need anybody. We all need one another. But we never find one another until we make a decision that I'm going to learn how to sense the Holy Spirit connecting me to another believer instead of just reaching out to touch people that I feel naturally and humanly connected to because of culture, background, experience, politics, ethnicity, or social economic status. And when we do that, huh, watch out. Watch out. Let's bow our heads and pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I just speak your blessing over this gathering of your sons and daughters. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for revelation today. Lord, some of us have this idea of revelation that it just happens when I lock myself in a room and I just reach out to you by myself. And we don't realize that there's a level of revelation that comes through our fellowship that will never come through our isolation. Lord, you want to put two and two together. We're coming into a season in which you want to put two and two together. You want to take a piece from this side of the room and connect it with the piece on the other side of the room. But God, our eyes are closed. We're so locked into our own realities. And we can't see. But God, I pray today that you'd open our eyes and that you'd cause us to see. I pray it in Jesus' name.